In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So. I hate talking about Luke. It makes me crazy. (laughs) Hi, everyone. Welcome to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Emily, a, a classics enthusiast. And I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. And this is the first episode we are recording since we posted our inaugural episode on The Lightning Thief. Thank you all if you have responded to us. It's been a lot of fun getting to finally share this project with you all. So exciting hearing what people are responding to and how other people interpret some of this stuff which i'll say now uh while we're talking about it if you want to join in we are at pjo pod on twitter instagram and tiktok and you can also email us your thoughts at monster donut podcast at gmail.com and questions and questions (laughs) because i have many (laughs) anyway this week we are Doing a bit of a departure, I think, from the expected. So, so far, we have talked about The Lightning Thief and The Sea of Monsters and the third book, The Titan's Curse, is coming up next week. But before we do that, we actually wanted to dive in to a short story that was published in the companion work by Rick Riordan uh, to the Percy Jackson series called The Demigod Diaries. For today, we both read Luke's Diary. Yeah, which I'd never read this before. I've never read any of the short stories. I had like already started reading the first chapter of Titan's Curse. 
when Phoebe <laughs> texts me and was like, I've just realized we need to read this short story first. Take us through that that decision, Phoebe. Oh, okay. <laughs> we knew we didn't want to start with it, even though chronologically it should come first. The big reason, at least uh, to me, the big reason I didn't want to read it first was that I feel like some prequels can be experienced without prior knowledge of the story that they're a prequel to, mm. but the meat of this short story and like the tragedy of it yeah. all come almost exclusively from already knowing who Luke and Thalia are. It's like not something I wanted to analyze on its own. But at the same time, I wanted to read it in a place where it would inform how we read Luke in the present rather than reading it later on when it might be strictly retrospective on his actions. So I think reading it now, immediately after the Sea of Monsters where Thalia wakes up and that history that's been sitting beneath the surface of the story suddenly mm -hmm. kind of bubbles up, I thought it fit having this story be part of the bubbles. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think the, when I, the more I read it, the more I realized like, yes, Phoebe is so correct, as per usual. <laughs> I want to hear your first reaction. What was your experience reading this for the first time? Oh, man. This is pretty good. I really enjoyed this short story. 10 out of 10 would recommend. I would say if you're a fan of Luke, it is absolutely worth picking this book up just to read this short story. Especially if you want to follow us along and really take a deep dive in this series. I feel like it adds a lot of really interesting things to think about. And also what's kind of cool about it is a lot of the stuff in this story is like very original to like Rick Riordan's brain. Like he's following the tropes of Greek mythology, but this isn't a Greek myth. He's not repeating it. It's a very original work within the canon. So for those of you who have not yet read the story, A, I would highly recommend it. It's really short. It's like 60 pages in the book. I listened to an audiobook version that's like an hour and 20 minutes. So approximately the length of one of these podcast episodes. So you can put this down if you want and go listen or read that and come back. Um, but if you're not into that, or you just want a quick refresher on what happens in this short story, because it's been a minute, here's a quick rundown of the plot. This short story is Luke's first diary entry. He's 14. And Thalia is 12, and he and Thalia have been traveling, just the two of them, for a long time at this point. And at the start, Luke is following Thalia's lead as she follows a magical goat through Virginia that she believes is a sign from Zeus. And the goat ends up leading them to a broken down mansion where they end up trapped with a 60-year-old son of Apollo who has been punished by his father for looking into the future and then attempting to change it. He can't talk except through all of these monstrous creatures called Lucroti. They are there guarding him, so um, any half-gloods that come in will keep him company until sundown, at which point the Lucroti will eat them. And so far, there has been no way to escape or save them. And they spend their day there trying to figure out a way to get out of this mess. They do, because they don't die. But uh, also as part of their journey, Halcyon delivers prophecies to both Luke and Thalia. And post-adventure, we actually get to see them find Annabeth for the first yes. time. And that's kind of where it ends. So we learn a lot about Luke um, in this, these opening narration chapters. Yeah. I, even in the first line, 
which is just my name is Luke. Mainly because it's hard to read this story and not compare Luke to Percy, especially yeah. the way that Percy narrates and chooses to tell his story <laughs> versus the way that Luke does. And then yes. looking back at The Lightning Thief, we only get My Name is Percy Jackson at the bottom of the first page because he spends the entire first page warning you that you probably shouldn't read this story. <laughs> so Percy is kind of anticipating the danger his words might put the reader in and acting on it, which isn't something that Luke seems to consider. And at first I thought, oh, well, maybe it's just because he doesn't anticipate having a reader at all since it's a personal diary. Mm. But he does censor things like the recipe for Greek fire later and like does talk like he kind of expects someone to read this at some point. Mm. So I just enjoyed that as an immediate piece of characterization that comes yeah. from an immediate contrast with Percy. I think going into the Titan's Curse, knowing that Percy is narrating also as a 14-year-old, it will be interesting to look at their different narration styles and seeing where they're both at. There's also an interesting implication with how it starts where, like, this isn't his diary. This is Halcyon's diary that he's, like, adding to as well. Mm -hmm. Halcyon basically gave this to Luke with the intent for Luke to read his diary in addition to adding to it himself and it, it does remind me also of you know that conversation we had at the beginning of talking about the lightning thief of like how do these characters want their stories told if they want them told at all and so you asking you pointing that out makes me wonder like does he want people to read this i have something to say about that um at the very end <laughs> he says something that was very interesting to me at the very end of the story there's, there's a lot of very interesting lines in this story um, he's always just saying things and you're like, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, one of the things we learned, though, is that Luke like runs away when he's nine and he's alone for three or four years. Mm -hmm. That's wild. <laughs> and somehow made it to Charleston from Connecticut in that time. So like yeah. he's been on the move. He says he's fought countless monsters by the time he's by the time he was nine. And I was wondering if like that is referencing, you know, before or after he leaves home as well or both. I mean, probably both. Because Luke and Thalia both have a relatively unique relationship with their parents. Yeah. Like I feel like in The Lightning Thief, a lot of people have a very similar experience to Percy, which is they don't know who their godparent is. They have a lot of troubles in general fitting in in the mortal world. And a lot of them have very strange relationships with their mortal parents and mortal families. And Thalia and Luke, they're the two characters we've met. I don't think this is unique to them in this world by any means, but they're the two characters where their mortal parent was deeply impacted and kind of broken by the leaving of the godparent. Yeah, they both kind of spiraled afterward. And I think because of that, both of them had to take on the caretaking roles. Like they, they basically had to deal with like emotionally immature parents, which leaves yeah. a huge mark on a kid. Neither of them have probably ever really gotten to be a kid. Right. I want to say I, I want to talk about Thalia and the Thalia that we meet in this story. Because yes. to this point in our reread, we've gotten stories about Thalia from Annabeth and glimpses of Thalia from Percy's dreams. And now we're seeing the Thalia of the past filtered through Luke. Yes. So three different versions of Thalia from three different perspectives. And something we'll be able to do in the next book is compare 
how mm-hmm. this version of Thalia that Luke conjures here compares to the Thalia that we meet down the line. But like even in Percy's dreams of her, she feels different there than she does here. Even though the Thalia that Percy meets is the same age as the Thalia in this story. Yeah. It's interesting also because there's like moments where like the Thalia in this version is very like outwardly affectionate with Luke. And I'm just right? like, what? who is this? I It's because like the one that we know from Percy's dreams, she's like pushy and kind of intense. And like even though she's on Percy's side, there's still a part of her that feels antagonistic. You know, she's nightmare material. That's why she's there. She's nightmare material. Yeah. But here she's less sure of herself. She's the one leading, but she's also the one who worries more often. Mm. And she's just not nearly as intense, which I think is probably a combination of what she was actually like at this point, but it's also because she's being seen by and filtered through Luke. And there, to Luke, there's, you know, there's nothing intimidating about Thalia to Luke. She's just Thalia. Yeah. He, like, is, like, kind of into her, question mark? Yeah, he, he'll he do anything for her. Yeah. He's just, like, totally devoted to her. And even if he wanted to argue, he probably couldn't. And, like, it's just so um, heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. At one point while I was reading, I wondered if they'd ever really thought about something. Which was a hard, it was hard to imagine that I had had that question because with the Luke and Thalia that we know, it'd be like, oh, it's a given. Of course, they've thought about something. It's Luke and it's Thalia. <laughs> yeah. But here it's like, even if they're not on the same page, which like, I think they actually very rarely are on the same page in this story. I think they're in totally different mm-hmm. places, but they have a very easy relationship despite it. Well, talk about that a little more. What do you, how, how do you mean in terms of them being very different places? I mean, the first obvious point is kind of the way that Thalia is introduced to the story because she's introduced mm-hmm. through her faith in her father. Like her first lines here are telling Luke to hide as they approach the goat because it's one of her dad's sacred animals, which like knowing Luke now is an immediate contrast to how Luke has been thinking and thinking of Thalia Mm. and like she really believes in these signs as messages from her dad where throughout the whole story we see Luke deny every possible message or piece of guidance from his dad like over and over like Mm. it's very possible that Hermes was actually reaching out to him at several points in this story and every time Luke denies it interesting show your work (laughs) okay i um it happens like three different times one of them oh when they discover the recipe for greek fire the idea comes to luke out of nowhere basically and he thinks to himself oh you know maybe this was a sign from my dad since he has a thing for like alchemy as a jack of all trades and then immediately follows it with or i saw the recipe earlier and it was just in my brain already And then he does it again, page 53, when Luke figures out how to activate Thalia's new shield. He says he takes a desperate guess and then says, thank the gods or thank blind luck. Thalia understood. (laughs) And he does that like several times in this short story. He has the thought, maybe this was the gods, maybe this was my dad. And then immediately follows it with, or more likely it was just the way things played out 
just the way things happen. <laughs> you know, going off the theme from last episode, also, interestingly, we were talking a lot about two sides of the same coin. And I think considering both of them have had, because of their upbringing, had to become like the caretaker roles and have to become the adults and grow up way too fast and then subsequently run away. They basically both have had kind of almost opposite reactions to that. Where I think on Thalia's side, she still has this belief that like, not all adults are like this. Not all of her parents are like that. And I think with Luke, it's like the other reaction, which is like, nobody can help me but me. I'm the adult. I, I'm i dad. Yeah. I, I think that makes sense for me for like why he's pushing all of these signs away. Because like Thalia sees the signs because she wants to, because she's still holding on to that deep down versus Luke is not. He would basically prefer it, honestly, because he'd be like, you know what? Like, I don't want to have to rely on something that's not me because I don't know what's not me. Like, I know what I can do. I know what I'm capable of. I I can't rely on chance and signs from the gods. Like, I can't rely on something that unstable. Yeah, I think Thalia is also just eager to be the kind of person who believes in her dad. And so having a sign is almost proof enough for her. That he's watching out for her but for luke he needs more than that a sign would never be enough and like guidance from unseen hands will never be enough he wants to see someone physically in front of them and he wants to express his anger in some way toward them <laughs> so i think you know when they sit there talking about their fathers angry at them for neglecting them i think it's coming from two different places and different Mm. actual wants from their dads which I don't think Luke actually realizes I think he thinks they're on the same page yeah it's interesting too because there's a few like symbolism items in this story one of the ones I kept coming back to that I thought was kind of interesting was there's this thing in Greek and Roman the term is apotropaic symbols and what that means is they ward off evil In um, ancient Athens, especially, there were these things called herms, which were basically these stone pillars, and they were carved to look like Hermes on one side and another god, often Aphrodite, on the other, with the penis also carved on it, because penises ward off evil. (laughs) I'm not making this up. And they were everywhere. And again, they're called herms for a few different reasons, but one of the ones is that like Hermes, protector of travelers, you know, they're kind of meant to be like protecting symbols for that reason too. And I feel like Hermes, like from what we've seen so far in the series is also much more like his influence theoretically should be the most pervasive of any god because he's the god of communication. And he's also the one that's like the guider of travelers. And part of me wonders if like that's connected to this idea of like he exists to keep you safe in ways you don't fully realize. Like he exists to ward off evil, not necessarily come in and save the day. Hmm. That's a fun little thought. (laughs) But while we were talking about messages from parents, there was a little note I made, which is that, so the goat, it turns out, led Thalia to the cave where Luke and Thalia first met. And... Mm -hmm. If it actually is some kind of guidance from Zeus, I was just thinking like if Thalia and Luke never met, Luke might not have ended up on the path that he's on in the present because her death is like a major factor in setting him down the path that he ended up on and is like part of why he 
ended up at Camp Half-Blood when he did in the first place. So in leading yeah. Thalia to Luke, if he really did, Zeus kind of set up what could, at this point in the series, easily still be his own downfall without realizing it. Although this is where we get into the interesting question, though. This is like the main trope with Greek oracles in particular, which is, or was that an attempt potentially to change fate? You know, it's, this is like, I think a huge thing I want to talk about in particular with regards to this story, but a huge thing in all of like Greek mythology with regards to oracles is they're very big on the inevitability of fate. And it's a huge thing that is also a part of the prophecies that camp, like it continues all the way through um, this book series as well, where the idea is like, even if you know the future, no matter what you do, fate is unchangeable. And they're very big on the whole idea of like, the more you try to prevent your fate from coming to pass, the more you dig the grave that has been laid out for you, basically. Part of me wonders if, because I kind of disagree. I feel like Luke is already on the path. Like maybe it would have taken him a lot longer, but I feel like he's already on the path of like questioning everything and really casting everything aside. And I think he does want to punch back already at the gods. And I wonder if, like, Kronos would have found him anyway, the way he's found a lot of unclaimed demigods so far in the series. And, you know, if potentially, you know, grouping them together is Zeus's way to try and get him emotionally connected to his side. Because at this point, like, Sally's alive. She could be, she's probably the child of the prophecy. So the things that make your head explode a little bit, why they don't mess yeah, with that's fate. True. Zeus is acting on the assumption that his daughter is probably going to be the child of the mm-hmm. prophecy at this point. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> it makes you wonder. It's also like, why do they send Annabeth to them? And it's like, again, we're giving them a family. They're giving them reasons to stay. Right. But I don't think that Luke's fate, it, it's still up in the air at this point, I feel like. <laughs> and I think part of that is like at the very end, that Hal is able to very specifically look into Thalia's mm-hmm. future. But when he looks into Luke's, he says, if you survive today, some of these things will happen. And like your choices will change the world. But like, I don't really know exactly what they're going to be. And it's like everything is very unclear when it comes to Luke. Mm-hmm. And I also think he probably couldn't have gotten away with being the lightning thief if Zeus had any idea that Luke was an issue. Yeah. (laughs) And so I think he's a little bit of a wild card right now. Yeah, that makes sense. We haven't talked about Hal yet. We haven't. We haven't even gotten out of like the opening scene. Okay, so Luke and Thalia follow the goat (laughs) to a broken down uh, old mansion. I do still have one thing that I want to know, which is that we learn something new about Luke. Mm -hmm. We find out that Luke actually has a power that he inherited from his dad. (laughs) <laughs> that was wild yeah, I wanted to know what your reaction was to that because I knew that but... the thing is like wait I first like... I, we haven't explained what it is yeah. Luke can Luke can kind of read and pick any lock mm-hmm. and like sense booby traps within locks and uh, can do it without like using tools he can just kind of sense the internal mechanisms and undo it with a thought well, I feel like this is a push that I think was kind of made, especially in the Heroes of Olympus series, where I think 
like the vibe I get is basically Rick kind of realized, wait, it doesn't make sense if just Percy and Thalia have cool powers. It does. <laughs> I, I have a lot of <laughs> thoughts about that. <laughs> so there's a lot more powers of other children of the gods introduced, like charm speaking for children of Aphrodite, etc. So I thought this is an interesting nod, but I also kind of enjoyed it because even if it is a retcon, I think his justification for why we've never seen this before is a great one character-wise, which is basically this idea. Again, we see Luke rejecting every piece of his godly heritage, and this is one of them mm -hmm. where you know he takes pride in the things that he has done himself. He doesn't like using this power. Like He only uses it both times he uses it because Thalia pushes him to do it. Right. It made me think back or forward, I guess, on all of the things that Luke does and like how good Luke is at escaping situations. Does that help him steal the bolt? Like, I don't know. There's a few things where I'm like, if he has this ability, could this have like been part of the reason why he's cho the one chosen to do all these things? He's a yeah, I, I definitely was like, oh, this is why he succeeded as the lightning thief. <laughs> Yeah. And it also, I for some reason hadn't put together like God of Thieves, the lightning thief. Like, this should be obvious, but my brain just never connected. I honestly those dots. didn't even think about that until just now either. It's fine. So they break into this mansion, and there are these weird curtains that burn Thalia's hands when she tries to part them. The door locks behind them, and even Luke's lock picking powers can't get past it. And they hear all of these voices and start seeing these monsters telling them to go upstairs. And they're like, okay, we're going to go upstairs, I guess. And they show up, and they're inside basically a cage. And on the other side of these bars are these creatures called the Lucroti, which <laughs> I had to look up because I was not familiar with these monsters. From what I can tell, they're like mostly written about by the Romans. And I just wrote down, I'm pretty sure they're just the Romans losing their shit over hyenas. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because they also can imitate human voices and so they hear these voices and they hear this voice coming out of all of their mouths. It's a human voice, a single human voice. It's a child of Apollo named Halcyon Green, who Luke describes in the funniest way possible because he's like, he's like ancient. 60? <laughs> Basically, he reveals that he's been gifted with prophecy. But because he used his gift to save the life of a girl, his father cursed him. And he's basically forced to, these demigods will come along and he'll basically get to spend however, however much is left of the day with them and then have to basically watch them get killed. Which is, wow. Yep. <laughs> this punishment is so brutal. <laughs> so brutal. I wasn't even thinking about how reading this story might color our first meeting with Apollo, which is coming up. Yeah. But this being our first look at Apollo this time around, I kind of love it, considering like the story that we're going to get yeah. in the third series, starting Apollo here. <laughs> we, we even get a little nod to like the original Apollo story, which is him slaying Python. Yeah. Um, that's going to be important later. But this learning Hal's backstory is mm -hmm. a massive turning point for Luke, I think. Yeah. Meeting another demigod, and this one actually has a relationship with their father that's gone sour. And, like, mm -hmm. I think to this point, he probably hasn't known the gods as anything other than neglectful and absent. But now it's coloring his perception of them into, like, something 
punishing and dangerous. So this is his first real knowledge of how the gods function rather than as just a, a, an absent presence. And Luke's immediate reaction hearing the story is like, at first it's confusion of like, but how could, why would the gods do that? Hang on. And then immediately goes straight to fighting back. Mm. Like he just refuses the idea of sitting in your punishment or accepting this kind of treatment with the gods and goes straight to, you should fight back. You didn't deserve that. To which Thalia says, yeah. he's right. <laughs> because Thalia, that's <laughs> apparently also Thalia's first thought too. <laughs> yeah. This is something that like really bothers Luke about Hal throughout this entire story is his cowardice. Mm. Like that bothers him a lot. Yeah. Specifically the idea of allowing yourself to be beaten down yeah. by a higher power. You know, continuing to let the demigods around him die yeah. um, and being afraid to act, like, really puts Luke's off. He calls him, like, just as bad as the monsters are. Mm -hmm. And then later insults him and the life that he leads to the point where Hal starts crying. Yeah. And so when you look at what he does later on, it's like, of course, none of this was ever thinkable to him mm -hmm. to just sit in treatment like that. Yeah. And I think it, it called into question a lot of our discussion about agency as well. Because Hal doesn't have any agency. The one time he used his agency uh, was what got him cursed into being this way. You know, the one time he used his gift from the gods to try and like actually change things and change mm -hmm. the world. And what he did was give this girl agency for a moment because he kind of freed her from whatever fate she was supposed to have. I think for me also, like, because he is also a prophet and because that's his power, like, the relationship between prophecy and agency here, I think also is really... I, I wrote it was basically like a meditation on it, almost, this short story to me. So Hal gives... He finally, like, kind of breaks his rule and he does give prophecies to both Luke and Thalia. And he says that Thalia will sacrifice herself and sleep for a while until one day she kind of comes to and will find her family again. And then, so first Hal seems really freaked out by Luke's prophecy because he sees fire. And I think it's implied he sees his own sacrifice, which is imminent. But then he says he sees a betrayal, a decision, and also a sacrifice. And so what does it mean to have agency in this world? What does it mean? Like, what is the line here? Like, can you avoid fate or not? And is avoiding fate the only way you can have agency? Hmm. Which I think is, like, one of the greater questions of this yeah. series. Yes, absolutely. It, it definitely is. You know, we've kind of mentioned already in this conversation the idea of trying to fight against fate and try to anticipate fate shows up in a lot of stories about Greek heroes and mythology in general. Basically, what I'm, what I'm piecing together in my head is that down the line, we know that Luke wants to be one of those heroes <laughs> like he wants mm. to have that glory and victory bestowed upon him and i'm trying to imagine how having experienced this story is playing into that because i think this experience probably only confirmed to him that you absolutely can fight fate if you want to i don't know though because like here's the thing is i think for luke like he doesn't want prophecies to be true he doesn't want the gods to hold that much power. He doesn't want fate to hold that much power. And I think, you know, skipping ahead, when he sees Thalia take her last stand on the hill and get turned into a tree, and that's like the one time after this her dad is like looking out for her. I feel like that moment probably broke 
him a little because he sees somebody once again the cost to him and to his survival being a half-blood sacrifice in himself and in Thalia's case like one of his best friends I feel like the fact that he's so powerless to stop the thing even though he knows it's gonna happen which is the huge point of these prophecies you know like yeah that's the thing no matter what you do you can't stop it it's relentless I feel like in a way breaking out of the gods in Olympus is a way to also break out of fate because the fates are gods too. I think that all of those things, yes, absolutely broke him. Yeah. I think that this all comes down to when you think he stopped keeping this diary. <laughs> because where I'm coming from yeah. is thinking, so he hears this story from Hal about how changing fate, although I don't know if I trust that he's actually changing fate what he sees in his prophecies might just be like the most likely path at the moment mm -hmm. because i just i don't think you can change fate I, I just don't think you do i don't think you can in these stories but i think luke hearing oh i changed a girl's fate and then walking out of there with hal saying you need to keep this diary so that you can keep track of you know, where you're at and make sure that you make the right choices so that you can kind of fix this <laughs> and right. make sure that you're on the right path. And so Luke decides, okay, I'm going to keep this diary. And then if he continue, however long he decides to keep that diary is how long he believes that he can actually change fate in my head. Mm. And so it all depends on how long you actually think he kept the diary for. My head canon I realized was that I thought he did the thing uh, the ADHD thing of like, I'm going to keep this diary forever and then did one entry. That's as far as I got with my thought on that question. So let's let's come back to it, maybe. Okay. So I do really also want to talk about how these prophecies change how we think about Thalia's sacrifice because, ooh. Yeah, like she knew, they both knew they yeah. both knew. <laughs> and yet I feel like, again, they had very different reactions. To me, it feels like Thalia, kind of similarly to how she sees the signs and she actively engages with them. Like, I feel like in that moment, she recognized what was happening and leaned into it. And I think also she had a comfort in knowing, like, this isn't it. Because I think it gives her more certainty. Versus I feel like Luke comes out of the story feeling like, you know, he, he says when they finally meet Annabeth and rescue her, basically, he says, I felt like I'd finally done one thing right. I swore to myself that I would never let this girl come to harm. And he continues on basically being like, I will never let anybody hurt my family. And yet the whole time he knows that there's this looming prophecy where Thalia is going to sacrifice herself. And thinking about that moment from Luke's perspective... They're just about to get to safety for the first time ever. They've been traveling for so long. He's been traveling for so long. They're literally on the cusp of being able to like take a deep breath. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, everything catches up. And he has to watch and be powerless to stop fate taking its course and the gods doing their thing. Yeah, and I actually think it would be one thing if... Thalia had just been killed on the hill. Yeah. And I think her being turned into a tree made it a whole separate thing. Because yes. it's like you 
had the power to do something and this is what you chose to do. You didn't save your daughter. You just... And then I feel like it's also in an interesting way, like when you see things like this happen, it brings also an interesting question of like, if you tell me I'm going to do something and then I do it, are you gifted with prophecy or did you influence me? Hmm. And what's also interesting is he gets told you're there's a betrayal and a sacrifice and a decision. And I wonder like here, like thinking about him carrying that with him, he's going to be waiting for this betrayal. He doesn't know what it is. And he's going to be waiting for the decision because he wants, as we've kind of touched on, like he does want glory. He wants to be a hero. So he will be waiting for that moment when he essentially kind of becomes the main character in his story and has that agency. And thus far as well, like I, I want to put a pin in this, but like sacrifice both in this story and also I think in a lot of the Greek canon is it's like the biggest way to achieve a heroic status and also agency like something i was thinking a lot about as i mentioned how similar luke's speech is to achilles's in the iliad and here as well like the other piece of achilles's speech that's really famous where he talks about his undying glory is like his mom came to him before he went to troy his mom who's a goddess and told him if you don't go to troy You're going to marry someone, live a long, happy life, have children. Their children will have children. Their children will have children. People will talk about you and sing about you. But eventually, all of the people that ever knew you existed are going to die. And the memory of you are going to die with them. Or you can go to Troy. You'll never come home. But people will talk about you and the things you did at Troy for thousands of years and it's a decision he makes that like idea of like in order to gain agency in order to make these huge seismic shifts you have to sacrifice i mean that's also like a huge piece of the greek worship you know the sacrifices are major like again the story of the iliad the iliad doesn't start with this but the story of the trojan war begins with menelaus sacrificing his daughter for victory Like I said, there's a lot of tropes in this story in Greek mythology, and that's a huge one. So I think something that's going to be interesting to look at is what Luke, knowing that he has a sacrifice on the horizon, like how how is that influencing his decisions? And also, like, what is he thinking this sacrifice is going to be? Like, how is he anticipating it? Excellent points. (laughs) I think also beyond the sacrifice thinking about how a prophecy might influence your actions so that it ends up becoming true. Hal telling him, oh, your choices are going to change the world could very easily have empowered him to act on his thoughts when it came down to it because he knows the choices and actions that I make are actually going to change the world. It won't be a fruitless attempt at taking down the gods. It's going to do something. It's also interesting because, I, I, again, like I said, I was doing some research. So Halcyon, the name, um, is it's from a Greek myth, but it has nothing to do with this story. So you think. <laughs> we'll find a way. No, it has nothing to do. It has, okay. it has absolutely nothing to do with the story. But what's interesting is that the name refers, Halcyon means basically like a brief pocket of really of good in like otherwise bad. Because it refers to like a halcyon day, which is like this period of time in winter where there'll be a few nice days where the kingfishers will get to lay their eggs 
in the middle of winter. And Halcyon is also uh, turns into a kingfisher in the myth. Like that's a whole thing. It's like very nature heavy myth. Which I can connect to prophecy because augury was the big Roman prophecy stuff, but that's all I got. So it's sort of like this moment of like bright, a bright spot in the middle of a lot of darkness in a sense. Discuss. Okay, this is harder to (laughs) find a meaning from. How does create a bright spot in the middle of the dark by setting his house on fire? So he does see their way out, though, in their futures, because he sees his own future. Hal sees fire, and Luke decides that they should be using Greek fire to burn the monsters, which Hal has the recipe for. And Luke decides not to write the recipe down, because he doesn't want anyone finding it and using it. And specifically says, I don't want to be responsible for burning down the mortal world, which I thought was a very fun little line. (laughs) Because... We know in this story that Luke does already feel a real separation between himself and the mortal world because he mentions like at the beginning that he's befriended mortals and would leave them pretty soon after because they didn't understand him and like he would try to tell his story and they just couldn't see how it was so bad for him. And you can kind of assume that growing up he felt a separation from the kids around him too and then running away still can't find that connection. So he's had very little to ground him in the mortal world. So like, it's no wonder that he separates himself from them. But still, there's no resentment yet. Like, there's Mm. no desire to turn on them. They're just people who live in a different world than him, who can't understand the world that he's in right now. Yeah. But none of the violence and anger that he feels is ever directed at them. Yeah. And it reminds me of a question I think you asked when we were talking about Luke, when we were talking about the lightning thief, which is like, what, what is the shift that makes him think like Western civilization is the problem and not like uh-huh. just his dad being the worst. And I feel yep. like you're kind of hitting on this idea of like, he doesn't really think about it this way yet. Right. He hasn't gotten to that point yet. And I think um, like the one of his final lines that I wrote down is he says um, his takeaway from this whole encounter is if the gods ever treat me that badly, I will fight back. Right. Which is interesting <laughs> Because if the gods ever treat me that badly, as like to him, it hasn't hit happened yet. Like he hasn't been yeah. treated that badly. Mm-hmm. But to the end of setting things in motion, um, once they are escape um, and Hal is in a way free through his sacrifice from his fate, they encounter a little girl who tries to attack Luke with a hammer. <laughs> Because she's, again, incapable of making a good first impression. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she would make a good first impression in his skull Uh, with her hammer. That's true. (laughs) And I wrote down my thoughts about this already, which is just Luke being like, I swear I'll protect them always. Yeah, Yeah, this is that's actually Luke again, making promises that he cannot keep. (laughs) Yeah. Because I was thinking about this at the very end of uh, his interaction with Hal. Hal writes something in the diary that Luke actually can't read. He says that he writes something down and then the last word says promise. And Luke says, yeah, I promise. <laughs> Does Luke know what he promised? He says, well, this is why I don't think that he could actually read Hal's handwriting. Um, at first I thought, oh, maybe he <laughs> read it and then didn't want to say what it was and was like leaving it kind of vague. 
But Luke thinks to himself, oh, I promise, Hal, if the gods ever treat me like that, I'm going to fight back. But we know that that's definitely not what Hal told him to do. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because Hal, in the end, starts saying, like, oh, you know, Apollo was actually right to punish me. Like, some things aren't meant to be seen. Yeah. And that was weird. at the end says, you know, for Apollo before uh, sacrificing himself. So, like, we know mm -hmm. that whatever Hal wrote down to have Luke promise absolutely it's wasn't not, what yeah. Luke thought that he was promising. But Luke likes to throw around promises. <laughs> Luke, Luke just likes to promise things and then not do them. Um, he does this twice in like the span of three pages is make a promise that he probably shouldn't be making. I, this is actually something that I want to talk about in the next book also. The, how powerful promises are in this series. Mm. Like promises and oaths and swearing on the river sticks. It's like, mm. in this universe, if you break a promise, it will have disastrous consequences. Even if it wasn't swearing mm -hmm. on the sticks, it's like, you cannot make a promise and then not keep it. Or else. <laughs> and Luke's pretty good at uh, not doing what he says he's going to do. So... Counterpoint. Child of Hermes thing, though. What? Lying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so... When we end this book, we've made camp on the way to a hideout on the James River. And when I realized that that was the same camp from the Sea of Monsters mm. <laughs> that they're heading to on the James River, I literally physically curled over. <laughs> like, I, I tend to have very physical reactions while reading and watching things, but, like, it was like I got kicked in the stomach because I hadn't realized that where they end... Yeah this story they're about to get to like the very first place that they're about to bring Annabeth is the place that she's gonna go after having that shouting match with Luke about what he did to Thalia mm. and then she leads them back to like that very first place the mm. first place she felt safe in a long time and it was b only because of Luke and Thalia it's like I no wonder she didn't want to talk when they got there in the last book it's like a traumatizing place to return to <laughs> I mean, we talked about it last time with that hideout being a sort of haunted place in this series, and it's even even more so now. And also, this story also kind of ends up having the same effect on Thalia and Annabeth's weapons, because Annabeth in mm -hmm. this story ends up getting her dagger from Luke, and Thalia gets her shield with Luke, thanks to Luke. <laughs> and now both of them, it's like, you can't, you can't do anything without that man haunting you. <laughs> In the same scene, though, in these last two pages of the short story, Luke says, while he's talking about how he's not going to let this family go, he says, if I'm going to be the father of this group, which I thought was interesting, how Luke sees himself as the father, with Thalia being the mother and Annabeth being the child, and like just immediately assigns himself that role. To me, it kind of brought home this feeling that I was getting from him for the whole story, which was like a yearning for... A connection with people and specifically like the classic ideal like family dynamic and like the amount mm -hmm. of the value that he puts in that but I feel like that yearning for a connection you can see it with the mortals that he was befriending and couldn't connect with and then with Thalia becoming someone that he doesn't want to let go of because she was the first person who he was able to connect with who understood him and like mm -hmm. connecting with other people on a really close personal level is really really important to Luke and I, yeah, that's not 
something you would ever get from the books that we've read so far because yeah. you know we haven't really gotten to know the, this is something about this story that I really love is that I think reading the Percy Jackson books it's very hard to tell when Luke is being himself because in book one we know he's lying for like the majority of it and then the rest of the books he's like putting on you know in the last book we talked about he he's putting on this you know confident air but he mm -hmm. can't totally keep it up as we're gonna continue we're gonna see sort of that uh mask start to crack and this is the only time that we actually get to see luke kind of as himself i think there's an element of it that we're not going to totally see luke because he's the one telling us the story so he's going to filter it through his own however he wants to be seen mm -hmm. but it is as close as we're going to get <laughs> to actually getting to see luke for who he is and so it's the only chance that we probably would have at least until this point to see vulnerability from luke and the last note that i made for this story it's one of the very last lines in this which is i'll write in this diary as i have the chance though I doubt anyone will ever read it. Which I thought to be a very uh, exciting little line. <laughs> mm. Because that is not the reason that people write in diaries. <laughs> they are personal writing that most people mm. don't want anyone getting their hands on. Like Hal didn't. But to Luke, like that is part of the reason that he might not keep writing in the diary. Like, he thinks mm -hmm. that's part of the reason that someone should keep a diary so that someone will end up hearing your story. And, like, he's right that a lot of people do keep diaries hoping that someone else might find it in the distant future, like, a hundred years from now. But, like, they don't say this explicitly. No one's saying that up front. <laughs> and so, like, you end up again back at that idea of having your story told. I think also this is another interesting thing, too, where he's also at this point been told he's going to make a decision that is going to shape a lot of the world because of Hal's prophecy. I think part of me also wonders if maybe that might also be a motivation. To keep the diary? Yeah, like there's, I think it's it's not just a Greek or ancient tradition at all by any means, but there's a lot of, there are a lot of like very famous Greek and Roman like accounts we have that are explicitly written because like at one point the person writing them was like, I'm about to live through some interesting times. Let me record this shit. Um, the biggest one being Thucydides with the Peloponnesian War. Like, he literally started writing about it because he was like, Athens and Sparta are about to kick it off, and I'm here. There's a long-standing history of this. A lot of, like, famous Romans as well, like, they wrote um, letters uh, to each other with the intent to publish them, or edited with the intent for publication. Like, a lot of Romans um, published collections of their letters to their friends. And so I think like there is that instinct in a lot of people that this is a way to get your side of the story out there. This is a way to like have something you can leave behind. Because again, this diary is all that Hal leaves behind. This might actually lead us cleanly back to the question I asked earlier, which is how long do we think Luke kept this diary? And we didn't mention this in the intro to this book, like in the introduction, Rick says that he's the scribe of Camp Half-Blood. And the diary was given to him by Chiron as basically the only source that they have on what Luke was going through before he went dark side. So how did Chiron get his hands on it? I feel like Luke <laughs> left this behind. In The Lightning Thief? You yeah. think he? Do you think he was writing in it up to the end of The Lightning Thief? I don't know. I don't think so. 
but I do think he left it behind. Okay. <laughs> I think that's probably part of me is like, oh, would Luke leave something as sensitive as the diary behind willingly? And then the other part of me is like, he wants this thing to be read. You know, if you're thinking like Luke and you're thinking, I'm about to change everything. I'm about to like start a revolution. Leaving your account literally in the enemy camp. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a way for someone like him to find him. You know, they someone in that someone else in the Hermes cabin, some unclaimed demigod could pick this up. That's what I was it. thinking. Is like I I almost picture him leaving it on his bed, hoping that one of the thirty other kids in his cabin is going to find it and share it with the rest of the cabin. Yeah, and I think it's also a way though of like insurance. Like if he loses, like they'll still know mm-hmm. they'll have his book. Yeah, I think that that's the most likely answer. However. I find it so much more interesting if he kept it all the way to the end. (laughs) Mm. Because it's like, oh, keep this diary so that you can make all of the right choices. And the amount of choices that Luke is about to make, I just want to read what he was thinking about him. Maybe Chiron got the diary because it was recovered from somewhere. Which isn't the right answer, but it's more fun for me. So, (laughs) yeah. In my mind, I do think he probably wrote in it until... I like to imagine that this diary has his dreams in it of Kronos when they start happening and that it has, like, accounts from his quest. Like, Mm -hmm. I think he actually did keep it as he was deciding, okay, I'm going to do this to help him work through that choice. And then once he reached the point of, like, okay, I'm going to make this choice. It's going to change the world. End of diary. And, like, puts it down. Off he goes to go kill Percy. Okay, but I have one more question for you. This short story obviously doesn't have a camp bead assigned to it. So if you were to come up with a bead for this book, what would be on it? Great question. I feel like there's an image in my head. I just like, it's not forming. It's like, you know, like, like who is that Pokemon? Oh, it's just a... <laughs> yeah. Well, I can say what mine is. And then maybe that'll mm-hmm. help you help spark some ideas. I think... It's got to be the dagger for me. Mm. Simply because the transfer of the dagger from this young girl who was supposed to die and had her fate changed, going to Hal, and then Hal handing it over to Luke, and then Luke handing it over to Annabeth, and thinking about fate, there's, there's something in the transfer of that dagger between people in this series i'm gonna leave it at that i I feel like for me it's gotta be maybe it's just a kingfisher which is what hal's named after yeah because i think also this idea of like birds being linked to prophecy Mm. i'm getting vibes it's literally just like the color green that's (laughs) it's just a blank bead that's green the snakes the greek fire there's a lot of green yeah there is a lot of green that's true Thank you for listening to Monster Internet. Next time, we'll be reading The Titan's Curse. Along with our first special guest. But until then, if you want to see the art I created during the recording of this episode, uh, you can check us out on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok at PJOPod. And the full episodes and time lapses will be on YouTube at Fojoko, P-H-O-J-O-C-O. I just haven't gotten around to it. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> also, if you would like to email us um, your own thoughts or questions or you disagree and you want to argue with us, <laughs> you can email us at monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com. I haven't yet seen Phoebe get into a fist fight in an alley, but I, it's something I would like to see. Oh, yeah. So email me where you are and when I should meet you, <laughs> and I will be there. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs>